0: God's Word with me to the Gospel of Luke. We're in Luke chapter 11, looking at verses 45 through 54 this morning. Last time we were together, we looked at verses 37 through 44, and we, we saw how Jesus was invited over to the house of a Pharisee for lunch, and how it quickly escalated into Jesus pronouncing a series of three woes upon them for their blatant spiritual hypocrisy. And it all began with Jesus not following the pharisaical traditions of washing his hands before eating. Now, if you recall, the Pharisees had instituted this very strict protocol for washing your hands before eating a meal. And we noted that this protocol, this practice, if you will, was, did not have its origins in the Old Testament or the law of Moses, but it was found in something called the Mishnah. Remember the Mishnah? was the running commentary of the law, and it gave strict provisions on how you were to obey just about anything and everything. What constitutes work on the Sabbath? How are you to remain ceremonially clean? How and what were you to tithe and just about down to anything and everything you could possibly imagine down to the finest detail? And so, this Pharisee, he becomes a little indignant with the fact that Jesus just came into his house, he reclined at the table, he got ready to eat without first washing his hands. He was supposed to be this holy man or this prophet or something that the Pharisees just couldn't quite make out, but they saw this as proof that there was something not quite right about Jesus because he wasn't following their laws. And that there is no way. He could be who he claimed to be because he wasn't able to live up to their own contrived definition of holiness. But instead, Jesus, he seizes seizes this opportunity to expose the Pharisees for who they were. And that is that they were phony, pious, self-righteous hypocrites. They had the appearance of a holy man or a righteous man, but their hearts were actually far from the Lord and they were leading others into the same path. He went it so far to even tell the Pharisees, basically in verse 44, he said, You know what? You're like a concealed tomb. Anyone who's listening to you or anything they are listening to what you have to say, and anyone getting even near to you is becoming defiled by you because you are spiritually dead. They were the type of people that Isaiah wrote about in Isaiah twenty-nine thirteen, when he said, This people, they draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They were tightwad tithers, they were pompous priests, and they were tainted tombs, if you wanted to put some catchy slogans on them. But they had absolutely no heart for God. Now this is very strong language that Jesus is using here. These are very, very strong words for those who in Israel at the time were supposed to be seen as the most godly and the most holy of all peoples. And so we had to ask ourselves these same questions from last week, like, does our outward self match our inward person? Did we even take time to ask God to help close that gap between your outward person and your inward self? Are you carefully and frequently examining your own heart before an omniscient God? Don't make the same mistakes that the Pharisees made because it is dangerous and it is deadly to try to live a life of hypocrisy. It has eternal consequences. Hebrews 4.13, it tells us, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are laid open and bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God knows what's in your heart. You may be fooling people about the state of your soul, but you're not fooling God. God knows your doubts. God knows your temptations, the the secret sins, the corruptions, the grumblings, the mock devotions, and the lusts of your heart. And some of you right now are probably totally unfazed by what I'm saying to you right now. Some of you are probably unmoved a little bit about what I'm trying to say, and you've already tuned me out. You may be like that pastor's wife my, ask, my wife asked one time. She said, how can I pray for you? And this lady said, oh, I'm good. Well, guess what? We'll pray for your pride then. You want to pray for me? I'll give you a list. I don't care if you want sequenced, alphabetized, whatever. Don't play with God, with your heart. He knows. He knows exactly where you stand. But for those of you who are sitting there thinking, you know what? I don't want to be a Pharisee. I don't want to be double-minded. I I want to love Jesus as I ought to. I say there's hope for you. Because the Bible says that there's hope for you. How do you make sure that you're not living a pharisaical life? How do you have a a good conscience about it, right? Samuel Annesley, a Puritan pastor from the 1600s, he answered that question like this. He said, take heed... Of every sin and do not count any as small. Renew repentance every day, being serious and frequent in your heart examination. Live as under God's eye, all things are bare before Him. Be much in secret prayer. Consider every action as a part of your life purpose. How many of us get up in the morning and say, I'm going to live for the purpose of glorifying God? That's what you're here for. That's what we're all here for. He goes on, he says, Enjoy Christ more and entertain good thoughts of God. And whatever you do, do it out of the love for God. It's not enough for you to be morally conservative. It's not enough for you to be religiously active. It's not enough for you to be somewhat theologically informed. God wants your heart You must be infinitely careful to watch and examine your heart and not be guilty like that of a Pharisee. But Jesus, He isn't quite done dealing with the Pharisees and the religious leaders who are leading these people astray. Because as we're going to see in our text, He's not going to mince words. And we're going to see this group that we frequently see running around with the Pharisees, and that is the lawyers. So if you're there with me in chapter 11, I want to read our text together this morning, starting in verse 45, to see what he has to say. So if you are able to stand with me for the reading of God's word, I want to invite you to do so. Starting in... Verse 45 of Luke 11, God's word says this. One of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. But he said, Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tomb of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers because it was they who killed them and you build their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles and some of them they will kill and some they will persecute. So that the blood of all of the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. "...from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God, yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering." When he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees became, uh, began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. Let's pray. Father, with our Bibles open before us, we just pray that you would speak to us this morning. Rend our hearts and make sure that if there is any way among us in our hearts that it might be laid open and bare to you and would take, take our thoughts captive to be conformed into the image of Christ God, help us to have our minds solely fixated on understanding what you would have to say to us this morning. We thank you for your word, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in case you uh, may have forgotten, tomorrow is April 18th, and it is the last day you should have probably waited to file your taxes with the federal government. Now, typically that date is April 15th, right? But the date was moved to recognize Emancipation Day. I don't know how many of us celebrate that holiday. But in Washington, D.C., they did, and all the IRS employees had that day off. And so if you've waited, tomorrow's your day. But it's reported that by the IRS that one-third of all Americans wait to file during the last week that tax returns are due. That's over 100 million Americans are waiting until this last week to file. So if you did wait, you probably won't have difficulty finding someone to share your tax filing woes with. But what's even more staggering is the fact that the U.S. tax code that began in 1913 as a 400-page legal document and remained that way for about 26 years has now grown to 25 volumes containing 75,000-plus pages of this monstrous tax code. 3,000 of those pages alone came from what has been the addition of the Obamacare laws in these last couple years. And if it continues on this pace, as it has been growing over the last century, by the year 2050, it is estimated that the U.S. tax code will be well over 100,000 pages in length, and it will be compiled into 33 volumes. And if you've happened to log onto the IRS website lately, you will find that currently there is 1,977 different forms and publications which you can download and print off for your reading pleasure. So how many uh, will be downloadable by the year 2050, who knows? But what started to be able to be contained in a 400-page book has grown astronomically into this multi-volume bureaucratic nightmare that requires a college degree to decipher. It requires expert interpretation or computer software in order for you to navigate around it to be a financial expert and know the ins and outs of the U.S. tax code because there are so many loopholes here and loopholes there. And so it was the same in the first century with the Torah and the Mishnah. There were some 613 commandments in the Torah itself. But by the time the lawyers got a hold of it and started to add their own interpretations of the Torah, it and how that's all practically to be lived out, there ended up being some 6,000 additional regulations, laws, and ordinances for you to try to live by. So, if you can kind of get in your mind a bible produced by the IRS you can start to get a glimpse of what the average Jew had to deal with in the 1st century they essentially they took the law of god and they buried it beneath their own traditions laws and ordinances but it didn't stop there it got even worse they would even take their own interpretations of their law and their own regulations and they would place them above the mosaic law They would say that to offend the law given by Moses, that was surely a serious matter. That was something to be dealt with, right? But that's because it's kind of hard to understand. But it was a far greater offense for you to offend against their interpretations because they had made everything so plain and so clear to you. And so it became this oppressive religious system that only the experts and the professionally trained could navigate around, and it was a huge burden on the people to try and follow. Now, we read a bit from the Mishnah a couple of weeks ago about how the process was to even wash your hands, if you remember all that. But listen to what the Mishnah says about protecting the fourth commandment and keeping the Sabbath and keeping it holy. How would you go about carrying a burden and thus possibly doing work and being guilty of breaking the Sabbath. Listen to what it said. It says, If a man carries a burden in his right hand or his left hand, in his bosom or on his shoulder, he is culpable. For this was the manner of carrying the sons of Kohath. If he took it out on the back of his hand, or with his foot, or with his mouth, or with his elbow, or with his ear, or with his hair, or in his wallet carried downwards, or between his wallet in his shirt, or in the hem of his shirt, or in his shoe, or in his sandal, he is not culpable since he has not taken it out after the fashion of them that take out a burden. How clear is that, you lawbreakers? And so you can see this endless bureaucracy and burden that was placed on the average Jew trying to not carry something on the Sabbath, and thus have this overriding guilt that you were constantly offending God. It had, to, it had become this oppressive religion, but the lawyers and the Pharisees, they knew how to weave and navigate through it all. And so when we have Jesus here inviting sinners, when he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When you have the Mishnah and you hear that verse, that makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? This was a welcome invitation by Christ compared to the massive, overloaded tradition that the scribes and the Pharisees had placed on the people. But the law was never meant to be like that to the people. Psalm 1 says, how blessed is the man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 119.16 says, I shall delight in your statues, I shall not forget your word. Psalm verse thirty five says, Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. You see? It was supposed to be a joy to follow God's commands. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene in the first century Israel, he's got this mess to clean up because these false religionists have made their own man-made religion, their own regulations, and so polluted and buried a nation that he had to say to them that they were preventing people from entering the kingdom of God. So the first people that he took care of, the first group, was the Pharisees. Now remember, in the first century, there's about 6,000 of these guys running around during the time of Jesus. But nonetheless, he says woe to them. Three times, woe. But this week, he's going to deal with their cohorts or their partners in crime, if you will, and that is the lawyers. Now there certainly were a lot less lawyers than there were Pharisees. In fact, some of the lawyers, they were actually Pharisees, But not all Pharisees were lawyers. But then you also had the Sadducees. Remember them? They had their own lawyers running around, but they were the ones who controlled the temple, and they were usually the wealthy people, and they got that position by a bribe. But the lawyers that were running around with the Pharisees, when we read about it in the scriptures, normally we see the word scribes. In fact, that word scribes is the most frequently used term to describe this group. But they were the ones who were interpreting and applying the Mosaic law. You could kind of think of the the lawyers as the seminary professors and the Pharisees as the practitioners. The lawyers were professional scholars and the Pharisees were the lay people that taught what the scholars wanted. And so you had the lawyers who interpreted, the Pharisees applied. And so by reason of guilt, by association, this one lawyer, he stands up at dinner here and he says... Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. Because when Jesus was pronouncing woe upon the Pharisees, he was really pronouncing woe on the lawyers as well, because they're the ones that taught the Pharisees what to teach. And so maybe he stood up to sort of kind of stop Jesus from going any farther in his condemnation, because no one in Israel ever talked to them like that. And why is that? Because they had elevated and placed themselves in such a position above everyone else, and they sought their own glory, that for someone to come along and accuse them of leading people astray was a really big deal. They loved the pomp and circumstance that came with their position. They loved the long, respectable greetings in the marketplace. They loved being called rabbi. But in reality, Jesus said that they were the complete opposite of what a true leader should look like. In Matthew 23, verses 8 through 12, Jesus said, Do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled humbled. And whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. And so in response to this lawyer's protest, Jesus pronounces three woes upon them as well. And it's not as if those three woes to the Pharisees didn't apply, because they did. First of all, verse 46. He said, Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers, <clears throat> excuse me. And we've seen this already in the Mishnah with the, the washing of the hands and the keeping of the Sabbath, and now technically uh, not to carry a burden, and how complex they are. But instead of being a shepherd to these people, instead of being an encouragement people uh, to the people as to how they can keep the laws they were creating, they look down on them. They despise them for not keeping their religious demands. Instead of helping the people and coming alongside and bearing their burdens and following God's law, they were really distracting the people by adding their own regulations and demands and just piling it on and then despising those people when they wouldn't follow through with it. Instead of giving grace, they would give guilt. But some of our modern-day churches, they do the same thing by adding extra biblical regulations on top of Christianity. Have you ever been into a church where every woman wore a skirt and every man wore a suit, and then if you didn't, you were looked down upon? I have. I'm not saying that you shouldn't wear a skirt or you shouldn't wear a suit or whatever, but it should never be a test for holiness or acceptance into the people of God. Some churches have a litmus test about what Bible translation you should read from, and, and if you use any other, you're not really using the Holy Bible. Some churches have a requirement that a a woman sew their own clothes and you're only allowed to use maybe a floral pattern fabric or even a solid color fabric. Some churches require that you give 10% of your income if you want to be a deacon in the church. Some churches offer a five-step program for this and 30 days of whatever to restore your marriage and prayer. Pray this prayer for financial peace and do this dare and you're going to get what you want. Pray this prayer to expand your territory and the list goes on and on and on. But instead of the church's main focus of worshiping Jesus Christ, instead of teaching and preaching and singing God's word, churches by and large have created their own systems and their own regulations on their followers. You want to know how to have a better relationship with your spouse and stop fighting? Get right with God, right? Ephesians 5, 18 through through 20, it says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God, even the Father. So how hard is it to have an argument with someone who is filled with the Spirit, who's making melody in their heart to the Lord, and they are always giving thanks? It's nearly impossible to argue with somebody like that. Get right with God and then all of your human relationships will follow. That's why immediately after that verse right there, it talks about wives and husbands and children and so on and so on and so on. You don't need a five-step program. You need a mind and a heart that is transformed and wrought by the Holy Spirit. You want to know why you have the wrong passions and the wrong desires? It's because you believe the wrong things about God. You understand the wrong things about the world. You understand the wrong things about your sin. We don't appreciate the depths of His grace and the exceeding sinfulness of our sin and the cost of His sacrifice. But a true knowledge of God will lead to a new passion for God, which will in turn lead and help produce holier living to God. We don't need a bunch of programs. We need a person. And that person is revealed to us in His Word. And so churches are always trying to find new schemes, new systems, new programs, and then they wrap it up with a little Christianese, and then they ultimately supplant and they separate people from the Scriptures, just like the lawyers did in the first century. But also for us men, for you husbands, you fathers, do we lay up a standard for our children and our wives that is nearly impossible for them to obtain. And I want to be perfectly clear here. It is absolutely sinful for you to demand that your wife look like a supermodel from the cover of a magazine. And you say, well, how might that be sinful? Lust, coveting, idolatry, you pick your poison. It is sin to demand that. But do we demand, as husbands and fathers and men, do we demand the absolute perfection from them in all areas, and yet we are frequently guilty of not even meeting them ourselves? Are we just as guilty as these lawyers in our child-rearing by heaping guilt upon them for not meeting our expectations, and yet we don't lift a finger to teach and train them and extend a little grace? If you're anything like me, you've got a lot of work to do. Then he goes on to pronounce another woe in verses 47 through 51 when he says, Woe to you, for you build the tomb of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve of the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and some they will persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Now, if you would happen to travel to Jerusalem and go to the, the Kidron Valley, you'll see these tombs that were built there in memory of some of the Old Testament prophets. There may be some pictures uh, floating around. If not, there's one out front there. And, and that's a picture of the tomb of Zechariah. And it is literally carved out of a single piece of rock. It would have taken a tremendous amount of physical labor to carve this thing. It's, it's really artistic in, it's, in the way it's designed. But this thing is 43 feet tall. And it's carved out of a solid, piece of rock. So if you can imagine going down here to Shelley Corey and you pick out a wall of rock and then carve a 43 foot tall building out of it with a roof and columns and all these sorts of artistic things, this is exactly what they did. But Jesus condemns them for doing this. Now you might be thinking to yourself, you know what? This is a bit of a stretch for Jesus, isn't it? I mean, they, they weren't there when their fathers killed those prophets. I mean, how can they be culpable of the murder of the prophets just by building a tomb? Well, the reason being is that although they claim to be different than their ancestors, and they claim that they would have never done such a thing as kill a prophet, the reality is that the knower of men's hearts, he says otherwise. In fact, in Matthew 23, when Jesus is pronouncing his woes there, he quotes them. He says, If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. But Jesus throws a red flag. He says, no way. You are just as guilty because you have the same sinful attitudes as your fathers. Building a tomb was not the issue. The issue was they had the same rebellious hearts that their fathers did. As one commentator put it, he said, your fathers killed the prophets? and you're making sure they're dead. Why? Because, listen, it was easier for them to memorialize and admire the prophets of old by carving a 43-foot-tall monument out of solid rock than it was to live for God and actually do what the prophets said. It was easier to carve a building out of rock. They had the same ungodly lifestyle as their father. They had the same pious, self-righteous attitudes that their father had. They tried to honor the prophets with their tombs, but they dishonored them with their lives. And so if we had boiled it all down here, what Jesus is saying here is like father, like son. You are no different than your murderous fathers. But beloved, don't we do the same thing with the word of God? I mean, don't we, like, revere it, and we pay homage to it, and we hold it in high standards, and high esteem, we honor it, we memorialize it, and we say that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, and yet we are far too quick to put it on our, maybe if I have time today, I'll get to reading that, right? Don't we actually cherish the Scriptures, but we, have a, we do a poor job of actually living it out? If you are the only Bible that people know, and you are the only Christian that people ever have a connection with, how much of God would they actually know? Are you longing for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, as 1 Peter 2 2 tells us? Are you armed with the knowledge from the word of God that you are a chosen race, you are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into marvelous light, as 1 Peter 2.9 says. It's one thing to revere the Bible, but it is surely another thing to know it and live it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And for these lawyers, it is one thing to memorialize the prophets of old, but it is surely another thing to live and do what they had said. But you want to know what the ultimate proof is? That what Jesus is telling them is 100% spot on? They're going to murder the greatest prophet of all by crucifying Jesus on the cross. They had all the prophets of the Old Testament. They had heard John the Baptist they had the twelve that were sent out, then the seventy that went out, and all proclaimed the, the kingdom of God, and all the witnessing of the healings and the demonic exorcisms. And they would have the unprecedented privilege of hearing from the lips of God incarnate, and watching His power over nature, disease, demons, and even death itself, and an incredible display of power and authority. And yet they're going to do the same thing that their fathers did, and they will crucify Jesus Christ. But Jesus isn't quite done with them yet. He gives them one final woe in verse 52, and this is one of the most damning woes that he gives them. He says, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. Those who were thought to hold the keys to salvation, they were actually holding about 6,000 keys that opened nothing. The men who were supposed to be showing people the way to God, they were actually blocking the door. And what was this key to knowledge? What was this secret that, that unlocks the mystery of salvation? Very simply, it was Jesus Christ. John 5, 39 says, You search the Scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. Luke 24, 27 says, Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Luke 24, 44, Jesus said, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things that were written about me in the law of the Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The key to saving knowledge was that salvation came through Jesus Christ alone, by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, according to the scriptures alone, and all for the glory of God alone. Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. This was the key of knowledge that they had missed. But we can do the same things as a church if we're not careful. How might we be tempted to do this? Philip Graham Ryken, in his commentary on Luke, he says we can do the same thing when we fail to be clear and simple in telling people about salvation and Jesus alone. We talk about our business of our church more than we talk about the saving work of Christ. We focus on outward rituals more than we concentrate on the inward transforming work of Christ. Of the Holy Spirit. We treat the Bible as if it's to be analyzed rather than the actual word of God to be believed and obeyed. We emphasize a certain particular doctrine so much that we distort the message of salvation or we confuse our Christianity with our politics. There are a myriad of things that we can do that would hinder people from the kingdom. There is a multitude of things that we can get ourselves tangled up in as a church. And so we must be careful to guard the faith once delivered to the saints. We must watch our doctrine carefully, be steadfast in our loyalty to preach Christ and Him crucified, and be careful that we don't hinder anyone from coming into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That is why we're here. And so what is the reaction of these false teachers? Verse 53 tells us, When he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees became very hostile to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something that he might say. Instead of humility, instead of introspection as to what he had said, they doubled down on their pride. Instead of repentance, instead of heeding Jesus' warnings and reputing their false systems that they had created, they became increasingly hostile to him. They became enraged. And the word here for plotting and catch in verse 54 are like hunting words that mean to lie in wait or to ambush or to capture like a wild animal. And although they will never ever be able to trap Jesus as they would like to do, they will eventually resort to lying and bringing in false witnesses at his trial. And so what are we to take away from this? We must be careful and not setting up our own sinful demands of perfection and set up our own legalistic requirements on people and not extending grace when it's due. We must be vigilant in our demands to rightly hear the word of God God from this pulpit, lest we hinder someone from the key to knowledge found solely in Jesus Christ. And most of all, we have to examine our hearts And we have to be vigilant and careful to watch over them, to make sure that we are practicing our religion because of our love for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this testimony in scripture so that it might instruct us and cause us to pause and examine our hearts to see if we are obedient for the accolades of men or if we are obedient because of our love for Jesus Christ. Lord, there are some here who struggle with that. And I pray that they might be filled with the knowledge of Christ so that they can love him more intimately and personally than they have ever done so before. And Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's.